Turn, if you would, to the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew. I could tell you more stories about the uh, continuing uh, play that we're in. I told you last week that we had an individual that uh, got his nose broken during the fight scene. Um, Well, he had to have surgery on Friday of this week. Most of us have a double. That means somebody else that knows the part. Well, his double was doing uh, Navy Reserve this weekend. So all weekend, I was a totally different person. So I had to learn a different set of lines, and I had to sing. And if you can't notice, my voice is gone, so I'm muddled through it. We've been working our way through chapters 24, and today we're starting into chapter 25, dealing with the second coming. The disciples were talking to Jesus, and they told him, look at all this magnificent structure, the temple and all of its surrounding. And Jesus told them, There will come a time when not a single stone will be left standing of this magnificent structure. So when they got alone, they asked Jesus, when is this going to happen? When are you going to come back? What will be the end of the age? And he launched into a discussion in chapter 24, dealing with the signs of the tribulation. This is that period of time when... According to our theology, the believers that are on earth right now will be raptured. The earth will experience seven years of horrible tribulation. And at the end of the seven years, Jesus will return. And we started with four points. Remember, I did them at the beginning so you wouldn't forget where we were going. The first one is, is that Jesus is going to return. This isn't some picture of something. This isn't a metaphor for something. Jesus is going to return. Point number two, nobody knows when. If somebody tells you, I know when it's going to happen, do not believe them. In fact, Jesus himself said, I don't even know. And we had a discussion last week about how Jesus, who is God, cannot not know something. We had that discussion last week. Point number three, there is going to be a judgment. When Jesus returns, he's going to judge the people on the earth. And point number four, we are called to be prepared. So having finished his discussion about the the, uh, tribulation period, he then has a series of parables talking about the necessity of being prepared. But before we do that, I want to talk just very, very briefly about the end of the story, because he doesn't really talk about the end of the story. Remember, he talked about the tribulation, and then he talked about the return. And then he's going to talk about, well, you'd better be prepared. But I just wanted to read a passage to you from Revelations chapter 21. Revelations chapter 20 talks about the millennial period, that thousand-year reign of Christ on earth following his return, and picking up in verse 1 of chapter 21 of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He would, will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the glorious hope that all of us as believers have. This is the eternal city that we will inhabit. That is the hope. That is why all this talk about the second coming is so important. I'll let you in on a secret. No matter how bad things are in the world, no matter how much when you read the newspaper, you think, gosh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. No matter how much that occurs, remember, at the end of the story, God is going to win. And that's why we need to be prepared. Back to chapter 24 of Matthew. We started to get into the first of the parables. So I'm going to start reading it and then we're going to finish it. Starting in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at the proper time? So this is the servant who's in charge of taking care of the servants, right? The master has said, here are my servants. You're responsible for tending to their needs. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him in with the hypocrites in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you know the picture right here, but who are we talking about? Well, obviously, God is the master. God is the master. We could argue about whether it's Jesus, or, but since Jesus is God, we don't need to have that discussion, right? So God is the master. Jesus is the master. Jesus has left, and he has left people with certain responsibilities. Namely, in this case, people responsible for tending to the needs of the rest of the servants. Who are the servants? Raise your hand. You're the servants, okay? We are all the servants. Even the person over the servants is a servant. Everyone's a servant. My contention would be this. I'm not sure where you are in your life at this point in time, but there's somebody for whom you are responsible to providing their spiritual food, Maybe their physical food, I don't know. Tending to their needs. We as a church community are responsible for meeting the needs of those in our community. More about that in just a moment. And so we talked about the first half of this last week. At some point, <coughs> the master is going to return. 
The master's going to return, and he's going to see this servant. He's going to see the rest of the servants who are well taken care of. They've been fed properly. There's no bad words. And the master is going to tell the servant, good job. I'm going to put you in charge of so much more. That's the good answer. That servant was prepared for the return of the master. But let's look at the other side. I've been given a certain amount of responsibility. I have a certain amount of authority. I'm still a servant, but I begin to think that maybe I'm not the servant, I'm the master. Because I'm standing in for the master while he's gone. So then I start attacking the people. I beat him up. What do you mean you're not doing what I want you to do? Whack, whack, whack. And that's what he does. And not just that, he starts spending a little too much time indulging in his own desires. It says that he drinks with drunkards. He's hanging around with the wrong people that is preventing him from doing what he was called to do. And then guess what? The master shows up someday. And here he is, a little tipsy. We've got bruised servants over here. And the master looks at him and says, you wicked person. I'm going to put you in the same camp with the hypocrites. In fact, it's a pretty horrible sentence that he has there. I'm going to chop you to pieces. And I'm going to put you in a place where there is wailing <coughs> and gnashing of teeth. Today, we as a society do not like the discussion of hell. We'll talk about heaven all day long. We'll make movies about going to heaven. We'll do all of that. And if you ask people, a vast majority of Americans believe in the existence of heaven. Not so much the existence of hell. I, I'm sure I've told you before, I had a friend who was a devout atheist, and his wife believed in heaven, but didn't believe in hell. And her husband thought that was silly. You've either got to believe in both, or you can't believe in either. But we want to believe in the good side, but we don't want to believe in the bad side. Why don't we just invent a religion that gets rid of the whole idea of the bad side. Several years ago, a very well-known Christian pastor and author wrote a book where he made the case that in the end, love is going to win and everyone's going to go to heaven. He is no longer a pastor. But he's still writing books. Why do we believe in hell? It is interesting if you look at modern thought about religion in general. Because there's this unspoken assumption that starts everything. The unspoken assumption is some human being made this stuff up. Why did they do it? Why did they make it up? I may have told you uh, a couple of weeks ago that I was listening to a series of lectures about the New Testament, written by a college professor, 
very intelligent, really knows his stuff. But his basic premise is they made this stuff up. So when we talk in our modern society about why we believe in hell, people have to come to a conclusion about why you, you personally, feel compelled to tell somebody that if they don't believe like you, they're going to hell. Why do we believe in hell? Because the scripture talks about hell. I have no desire for anyone to go to hell. None. Zero. But when I study the scripture and we look at the fact there's going to be a judgment, we have to acknowledge that when there's a judgment, there is the opportunity to say no to God. And if you say no to God repeatedly, why would you want to, why should you be forced to spend eternity in the presence of a holy God? This is not a morally neutral universe. Every choice that you make has consequences, either for or against your movement toward where God wants you to be. Hell is for those who ultimately say no to God. They have looked at the evidence, maybe, They've been exposed to the evidence to some degree, and they've looked at it and they've said, no, I'm not interested. It is a real place. Each of these parables is going to end with the good and the not so good, and there's going to be a distinction between them. It is not there to give us pleasure. That's what these people want to believe. At some point in time, I invented hell just to send you there because I don't like you. I don't know about other people, but I don't dislike anyone to the degree that I would wish that upon them. Jesus, looking at the lost in Jerusalem, wept because they needed help and they were refusing to accept him as the Messiah. One more point about this. We're talking about the master giving the servant authority over the servants. Remember, three lessons ago, we finished the discussion of Jesus and the Pharisees. And what did he call the Pharisees over and over again? You hypocrites, you brood of vipers. What does he call the servant not doing what he was supposed to do? He calls him a hypocrite. What he's talking about here in a specific instance are those Pharisees who were the religious leaders who knew the law, who knew the scripture, and they were using it to beat the living daylights out of the people that they were responsible for. For ministering to. Specifically right here, we're talking about people in a position of authority, and that was the Pharisees. And guess what? They are held to a higher level 
of accountability. Turn to the next chapter. We actually read this first story when we started the whole second coming, but we'll do it again. Then the kingdom of heaven, at that point in time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. You know the way all this works, right? In a good Jewish fashion, the um, guy proposes to the girl or the guy's father proposes to the girl's father, you know, however it works out. They work out some agreement, and then the, the bridegroom, the groom, leaves. And he goes to prepare a place to bring his new wife, either an add-on to his father's house or some other house. And at some point in time, when he's ready to bring her home, he will go and fetch her. And when he's coming, it's going to be this celebration. I mean, this is the wedding. And people anticipated this, and we're getting excited, and we're getting ready because we know the groom is coming. You know the picture, right? Christ is the groom. We, the church, are the bride. Okay? That's the picture. Five of them, the virgins, were foolish. What can we say? And five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, um, saying, since there's not enough for us and for you, rather go to the dealers and buy for yourself. Now, that's a really strange sentence. It is midnight, remember? <laughs> Walmart would still be open. But I'm not sure what would be open at this point in time in history. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So you've got the picture. There's ten young women, probably what we today would refer to as the bridesmaids. And they have the task of escorting the groom to the bride. So, it's been a long day. The guy's walking. They don't know how long it'll take him, but they're ready. And in case it gets dark, they've got their lamps with them. They are prepared to welcome him in the dark. But the wise bridesmaids have an extra flask of oil because they know this lamp is only going to burn so long. The foolish ones are not prepared. When the master, no, when the groom comes, those who are prepared are ready to receive him. Those who aren't, eh, not so much. They are told at that point in time, go fetch some oil. So they go rushing off. But it's too late when they get back. The door has already been shut. I might add, Oftentimes in the scripture, not always, but oftentimes in the scripture, 
Oil is a picture of the movement and work of the Holy Spirit. We see this, you know, they anoint people with oil. That's the Holy Spirit. What do the wise bridesmaids have that the foolish bridesmaids don't have? The power and strength of the Holy Spirit. Now, do you think it's fair that the master of the house will not let the foolish virgins back in when they return with their lit lamps. Is that fair? But you see, the word fair is not a good word to use, yet we use it all the time. Remember, we have talked on several occasions because Jesus uses the picture of Noah and the ark. In fact, we talked about this last week. Because the second coming will be like the time of Noah. He's spending a hundred years building this ark, witnessing to the people both with his words and his preparation. And at some point in time, the rain starts. And the scripture tells us that God closed the door. You see, we have in our mind, there's always a second chance and a third, and a fourth, fifth, sixth, 95th, 112. We have it in our mind that to be fair, God has to continue forever giving us options to do the right thing. God is under no such obligation. At some point in history, the door is going to be closed like it was on the ark as it is at this time of the second coming the door is going to be closed and judgment is coming are you the wise or are you the foolish have you accepted the holy spirit into your life or at the moment that you know it's too late Do you go and try to concoct something even though it's too late? Those are the only options that are given. Next parable. For it will be like a man going on a journey. Do you see this pattern here? The master goes on a journey. The the groom has left and he's returning. The master goes on a journey. That's the picture that we see. God, Jesus is the master, we are the servants. The master is going on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents. It is interesting because in the context of this uh, parable that we're about to study, we can use the word talent in the modern version of the word talent, gifts and abilities that God has given you. But at the time here, it's a unit of money. It's a big unit of money. Roughly, if you read the footnote at the bottom of your ESV, roughly 20 years wages for an average day worker. So you're an average day worker and you work 60 hours a week for some hourly rate. You work 51 weeks of the year and you do that for 20 years and that's how much money you have. 
That's a boatload of money. And he turns to the first servant and says, here's five talents. Go do something useful with it. To another two, to another one. Now let's just stop right there. This isn't fair. There I went with that word again, right? I shouldn't use that word. God in his providence is free to distribute his gifts and resources as he sees fit, not as we desire. Because we do have this. You know, we look at some bigwig pastor and we go, gosh, I wish I could do that. Well, God hasn't called you to do that. Now, maybe we can acknowledge the fact that God knows our capabilities and gives us that which we can actually manage. But it doesn't matter. The master is free to distribute his talents, his wealth, his resources as he sees fit. Let's keep going. He who received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. What did he do? He bought stuff, he sold stuff, he bought more stuff, he sold more stuff, and he made a profit. And at the end of this period of time, not, he doesn't have five, he has five plus five, he has ten talents. He's done well. We are not told the unit of time here. How long it took for the master to return. So also, he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Why would he do that? Because he was scared of losing it. He was scared that somebody would steal it from him. He was worried that he would misplace it. He was worried that something would happen to it and the master would zap him at the end of the day. So he was going to make sure that that talent was available for the master when the master returned. Not af now, after a long time, the master of these servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will see, I will see you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much more. Enter the joy of your master. Stop right there. We want to complain because this person got five, this person got two. It's just not fair. They had an unequal distribution of the resources that they were given to work with. But did you notice the response when the one said, I have five and I got five more, I have two and I have two more? The master gave the exact same response to both of them. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
you have been effective with what I gave you. I'm going to put you in charge of so much more. Now, let's just stop here and have the discussion that we need to have. What are the resources that Jesus, the master, has left us with? Us as individuals, us as a community, what has he left us? For some, it is in fact money. For some, it may be a spiritual gift. For some, it may be a certain set of talents, talents in the modern use of the word. For some, it might be a set of experiences that allow you to minister to people that no one else can. Years ago, I read an article about a woman who had been a prostitute. She accepted Christ, was following after Christ, and had a ministry to prostitutes. Guess what? I should never, ever, ever minister to prostitutes. Now, if one shows up in class, I will teach my lesson. But you know, this woman was in a unique position and she could minister to them in such a way that none of us could do. God has given each of us a unique set of experiences, spiritual gifts, talents, passions, and he wants us to use them. And why? So when the master returns, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been responsible for this, and you did what you needed to do with that. But how many times in your life have you sat there and thought, you know, I wish, I wish I was as smart as that guy over there. I wish I could sing like that person. If I could sing like that person, I would be spreading the gospel every chance I get. If I could do that, if I had that, and we spend our time looking at what the other has instead of looking at what God has given us. That's actually the next guy, right? The good and faithful servants are those who use whatever God has given them and put it to work. But there's a third servant. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Isn't that good? He had all of the money, all the gifts, all the talents that God had given him, and he still had them. He didn't lose anything. And it's interesting, his excuse. Master, I know you're a tough customer. I know how important money and things are to you. I know that you gather stuff up where you haven't even sown the field, yet you gather it up. There's almost the implication that he's stealing the stuff. There's almost the implication that he's not a nice master. 
Now, it's interesting because the master is not going to refute that statement. In fact, he's going to repeat it back to him. But is that statement true? Probably not. No, definitely not. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Back to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent comes to Eve and says, how you doing, gal? I'm fine. Nice looking tree over there. Yeah, nice looking tree. Nice looking fruit. Oh yeah, looks nice. You want to eat some? No, God told me I can't. In fact, God told me I can't even touch it, which by the way wasn't true. And the serpent says, eh, why would God tell you that? Because he knows, he knows that the moment you eat it, you will be like God, knowing right and wrong. You will know everything that God knows. What is he doing? He's lying about the nature of God. What he's telling her is God doesn't have your best interest in mind. God is just some hard master that's trying to keep you from being enlightened, keep you from the joys and pleasures of this world. God is a bad master. That's what Satan is telling Eve. What is his servant saying? I know you're a tough master. When we begin to walk away, we oftentimes do it by concocting a bad vision of who God really is. In the Garden of Eden, God was providing every need they could possibly have. Everything they needed, they had it. And on top of all that, they had communion with God on a regular basis. God was and is a loving God that wanted to meet their needs and, I might add, probably their desires. but we disparage God. We start saying false things about God, and we use that as an excuse to not do what God has asked us to do. So what happens to this guy? But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Let's just stop right there. Wicked not doing what God wanted you to do, slothful, lazy as sin. I've told you before, you know, in uh, the medieval period where they loved their list of things, you know, they had the seven deadly sins. And oftentimes, not always, because oftentimes people would put pride at the top. The scripture has lots to do about, to talk about pride. Some theologians, though, put sloth at the top because if you're slothful, regardless of what the rest of them are, you're not going to do anything about it. You know? Yeah, I'm a glutton, but it's too hard to change. 
Yeah, I've got some pride, but that'd be difficult to humble myself. I'm not going to do it. <sighs> I think I'll go take a nap. <laughs> Sloth is a laziness that prevents you from doing what God would have you to do. I might add, we live in a society, you may not, I do, that's go, 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 go. Rest is a good thing. Rest is not a sign of sloth, laziness. Rest is a gift that God gives us. I haven't had much of it this week. I did six shows this week. I'm exhausted. And that's what's affecting my voice. Rest is a gift from God. Sloth means, I don't think I'll do anything today. In particular, I won't do what the master has called me to do. So the master returns and he repeats the words back to him. So you thought I was a tough customer. You thought I was a bad master. You wicked and lazy servant, you know... You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. At least take the money and put it in the bank. I don't know what interest rates were at the time, but it would have been something. And that's what the master says. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. You're going to love this next sentence. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That doesn't sound, what's the word? Fair. Fair. God has distributed gifts, talents, resources, energy, time, money, you name it. God has distributed. Oftentimes, from our perspective, it looks pretty random. But it's not. God has it figured out. And God expects you to make use of it. And at the end of the age... Some people aren't going to do that. But they still have a lot of cash. And God is going to take that cash. I'm using that as a picture, right? God's going to take that cash and he's going to give it to the believers. Those who are in Christ are going to receive and receive and receive. Those who have Some will be given more. I don't know or necessarily care how much stuff, talents, resources you have right now. In heaven, there's going to be a boatload more. We will have more than we want or need. I'll let you know a little secret, though. I'm convinced that the moment you see God, 
your desire for yet another set of books, in my case, is going to fall away very quickly. All of a sudden, you're going to go, wow, I was worried about what kind of car I drove. We also had to buy a car this week because my, anyway, whole different story. And we have to buy one next week too, so. It's not going to matter. It's like you have Christmas with a one-year-old. Birthday with a one-year-old. We just had this. And you give them a great gift. And guess what they're interested in? The box. The paper. The ribbons. The wrapping. And we as a society are fascinated with the box. And when we get to heaven, we are going to be given so much more. But guess what? Those who are not prepared, the little that they have, and by that I mean they could be a billionaire, the little that they have will be taken away from them. That's the end of the age. And here's the sentence again. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, let me discuss for just a second God's economy. Okay? There are some people in this room who spend a lot of time studying economic stuff. They know the indices. They know what the Dow is doing, what the FTSE is doing, what this is doing, what that's doing. I read my Economist magazine every week. Okay? Follow that stuff. In God's economy... When God has given you something and you put it to use, you're not going to lose money. God has promised that his word will not return void. When you take God's word and you share it with somebody who needs it, they may slap you in the face, but God's word is going to start to work. It's going to work. When we do what God has called us to do, God will reap a reward. Guess what? You may live to see it. You may not live to see it. Irrelevant. It may return in a way that you expect. It may be returned in a way you don't expect. Doesn't matter. What we need to concentrate on is what has God given me and what am I doing with it? Whatever it is, we are so, we had this discussion last week, didn't we? We are so focused on watching Billy Graham preach and wishing we were like that. God has not called you to be Billy Graham. He has not called me to be Billy Graham. He's called me to raise eight kids and go to work every, week, every day and do what I'm supposed to do. And while doing that, present Christ to the world. That's what he's called us to do. 
I've told you before the story of Brother Lawrence. He wrote a famous book. It's just this thick. He was a monk, and he was a very bad monk. By his own admission, he was lazy. He just, I mean, he just could never get it down. So to be nice to him, they stuck him in the kitchen. Guess what? He worshipped God while washing dishes. He worshipped God while preparing the food. No matter what you're doing, do it to the glory of God. That's all God expects of you. But he hasn't given me enough. Not God's problem. He's given you what you need to do what he wants you to do. But I wish I was as smart as that person. No. I wish I was as good looking. I wish I had hair. (laughs) God has provided what we need to do, what he has called us to do. And when we lose focus of that, we begin to worry that God is not a loving God, that God is not a just God. God is not, there's that word again, fair. To one he gave five, to one he gave two, and to one he gave one. God's not fair. I think I'll take what God has given me and I'll bury it in the ground. At least he won't accuse me of misplacing it. He won't accuse me of losing it. I'll just bury it in the ground. Guess what? That's what we do when we take the gifts, talents, and experiences that God has given us and we don't put them to use. What does that mean? Oh, I need to go enroll in Billy Graham 101. No. Just sit down and pray for a while. God's given you that gift. He's given you that privilege. Talk to that neighbor who is nasty to you at times. Just smile and say hi. Because we're going to talk about it next week. Because we are, in fact, out of time. Because in the next parable, what he's going to talk about are not world-class evangelists. What he's going to talk about is you saw somebody hungry and you fed them. You saw somebody thirsty and you gave them a drink. You saw someone naked and you gave them clothes. You knew a brother that was in prison, and you went and visited him. Nothing in there about having world evangelistic events. Nothing. You saw somebody that was hungry, and you fed them. That's all. And guess what? God's going to look and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in. I've got a banquet prepared for you. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your warning to us to be prepared. I pray, Lord, that you would make us aware of the gifts that you've given us and that we would apply them to your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.